When Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he learned the power and the love of God. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we learn lessons from the Exodus and God's great rescue. We are in episode 55 of Exodus, and this is God's Great Rescue. We spent some time in our last episode looking at the Ark of the Covenant. If you'll remember, it is a it is a uh, an ark, a container that would have in it uh, some of the things from the from this whole Exodus journey. The the Ten Commandments end up in here. The manna ends up in here. Uh, the, these are items that get put in the Ark of the Covenant and they're carried around and it is pure gold. And I mean, I mean, it is, it's made with wood, but then it gold and plated around it. And it's, it's a beautiful piece of artwork that is something that the Israelites can carry around and say, here is the presence of God. And so they do that. Now, the danger of having an Ark of the Covenant or anything like this is that if anybody steals it, uh, it can cause war because this is central to your identity as an Israelite is the, is the Ark of the Covenant. It is a very, very important device. The, the nation of Israel would protect the Ark of the Covenant like they would protect their own family. As a matter of fact, they would protect it more than their own family. The Ark of the Covenant could never be taken uh, or misused or destroyed or something like that. That is that would be that would be destroying or misusing or taking God away from the people. So it's a very very important device, uh, a very important object, maybe I should say, very important temple temple object. I will say. Um, but it, the, the Ark of the Covenant is not the only thing in the temple. There's other things in the temple that are or in the tent of meeting or the temple or the tabernacle that, um, that are also quite filled with imagery. And we're going to get into one of those right now. So let's just go into Exodus chapter 25 and we'll begin reading at verse 23. Make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, a cubit wide and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold and make a gold molding around it. Also make around it a rim of handbreadth wide and put a gold molding on the rim. Make four gold rings for the table and fasten them to the four corners where the four legs are. The rings are to be close to the rim to hold the poles used in carrying the table. Make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold and carry the table with them. And make its plates and dishes of pure gold, as well as its pitchers and bowls for the pouring out of the offering. Put the bread of the presence on this table to be before me at all times. So this table that Moses instructs or that God instructs Moses to build is called the table of a presence. And it's made out of acacia wood. It's got gold overlay. And then the things that go on it are pitchers and bowls for pouring. And also we find out that the, uh, that the manna, that the, that the, the Passover bread, um, and you, uh, or just the bread, the consecrated bread in the ta- table, temple goes on this also. Um, and I have, I have a picture of it. Uh, of one artist's depiction of what this looks like. Um, so I will bring that up. Hopefully you can see that. Um, it's gold. It's got, uh, th- th- this is obviously not, 
what I'm showing on the screen is is not a uh, not a one. I mean, it's not the the actual one. And if you look at the legs of the table on the screen, you can see that these are kind of pre pre manufactured legs that you would get at Home Depot. So I don't think this is what the table looked like, but this is kind of what the table looked like. But you can see that it's gold. It's got the two uh, poles that go in it. So these are the poles that look very similar to the Ark of the Covenant. They slide in so you can carry the table of the presence. Remember, um, the people of Israel are a nomadic people. And so they must take with them all of these things no matter where they go. And so if they're going to move from one location to another location, they put the poles in this table, they lift the table up, and then somebody, uh, two, two men, probably two young boys, probably would carry this table around so that it could get to the next spot. And so the Ark of the Covenant can move around, the table can move around, all these things can move around. Why? Because the tabernacle, this tent of meeting, this tent is nomadic. You can move from place to place and you can bring God's presence with you. And that is one of the beauties of um, of having all this mobile is that even while they're spending 40 years in the wilderness, God is still with them because he is, this tent uh, is with him. All right. Uh, so, and then on the, on this table, um, in the picture, you'll notice that you've got bread, looks like unleavened bread. You've got a pitcher of wine. You've got a flagon. Um, and, and these are called the bread of the presence. Now, this same stuff is on the altar <coughs> in uh, many Orthodox churches. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, when you celebrate Holy Communion, typically you have all the elements of communion on a table. And that table we call, uh, in modern, par modern Christian theology, is uh, called the altar. Because what's on that table, it's a table of presence, but it's also the body and blood of Christ, which is sacrificed for us. Uh, and so it's also an altar. It's like an altar of sacrifice where this sacrifice is going to happen again. Um, and so, but it, its roots of all of this come from Exodus 25. It comes back from the historic roots of Christianity all the way back in the Exodus. And um, when we worship, when we come together and worship, there are elements in the worship that are new but there are, so, there are also elements of the worship which are really, really old from the foundation of Christianity. And the foundation of Christianity comes back to Exodus 25 when the Lord tells Moses to make this table and to put these things on the table. So when we, uh, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, this goes back all the way to Exodus 25. Now, you could ask yourself, well, there's a whole bunch of things in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There's a whole bunch of things that don't get carried forward into Christianity. Why this? And the reason why we do this is because Jesus at the Last Supper took this bread and this cup probably off of this table or could have, I mean, it's, it's symbolic from off of this table. And he offered a Last Supper with his disciples and he said, do this often in remembrance of me. 
And so when we have an altar and we have bread and we have wine, all of that ties back into Exodus 25. And what that shows is a continuous arc of the history of Christianity through time. Because we as Christians believe that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament, that the central moment of humanity is Jesus, that God becomes flesh and lives with us, dwells with us, and that intersection of God and man on the earth is the central point. That that event is the central point of history. So everything leading up to that event uh, leads up to that event, and everything after that event points back towards that event. Of course, then we also have a future event, which is the final um, judgment of God on the last day where the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall rise and we shall all live with God forever. But as far as human history goes, the and that will be the end of human history as far as the old heaven and the old earth, and then there's a new heaven and the new earth. But in the old heaven and the old earth, the, that arc of history from creation to redemption or to, uh, to the coming of Jesus, that whole entire arc of history, the central point of that arc is the coming of Jesus, that God became flesh and dwelt with us. So we don't necessarily forget some of the things of the Old Testament. They're brought through the narrative. And these particular items are brought through in the narrative because um, Jesus said to take and eat often, uh, do this in remembrance of me, celebrate my meal with me, and this thing comes from the altar of the Lord, or this uh, this table of presence, as they call it. So that's what the, the table of presence um, has manna on it. It has a flag and it has a flask. Uh, it has the the cup and it has the uh, it has the bread. Um, and then the priest would use these things. Now, if you'll remember, uh, when Saul was running after, chasing after David, David went into the temple. Um, and took the bread off of this table and fed it to his men, um, which actually was not allowed in Jewish law because David is a political figure and the temple is a religious portion. And even the Old Testament, there was not to be a commingling of the the religious side with the the political side, if you will. Um, The priests, everything in the temple was all the temple stuff. And the political side would have been outside of the temple. So even then, it was not allowed for David to come in and eat this bread. But David did come in and eat the bread, and God did not kill him for it. Actually, it seems like God continued to bless David for it. So I think there are times when, um, well, and, and then Jesus talks about that in the New Testament when they yell at him for letting his disciples uh, glean grain from the crops. And David said, well, what about, or Jesus said, what about David? He went into the temple and he ate the bread. Um, and of course the, that, you know, sparked a whole different discussion, which we won't get into now, but, uh, this is, this is the table of presence. And so when we celebrate Holy Communion, uh, we put our bread and wine on a table that could be called the table of presence. We also could say it's on the altar. Um, if we believe that the person who is uh, performing the, um, 
the words of institution over the Lord's Supper, if you believe that person is a priest, then you could say that this is an altar. Uh, and I'm, I don't remember if we've talked about this or not. We may have talked about it in Genesis. But the whole idea of a priest is a, uh, a huge difference between Roman Catholicism Christianity, which goes back a long time, and Protestant Christianity, which kind of started at the time of Luther. Because Luther said that there are no priests in Scripture. And if you look in Scripture in the New Testament, never ever is there mentioned a word of priest. And so if you are a Protestant and your whole entire foundation of everything that you do is based upon the Bible and there's no priest in the Bible, then the person that's consecrating the elements is not a priest. He is a... um, he is somebody other than a priest. In my in my case, I'm in the office of public ministry. Um, in the in the Roman Catholic Eastern Orthodox, that person is called a priest. Although in Eastern Orthodox, it's more normally father, which is I think different from priest. Um, so the so the priest portion of it did not come from uh, from Scripture. It came outside of Scripture. It's kind of historical that worked its way into the church. So by, by the time the church came into the second or third or fourth century, the priest existed. And in that case, then, all these elements then go on an altar because a priest is the one that consecrates the elements on an altar. But they don't have to. True Protestantism would not necessarily need an altar. Um, it could be confusing to have an altar. You have to understand why you have an altar and whether or not the altar serves a function of Protestant theology. And in our case, we believe that it is, you know, Lutherans believe that it is a sacrifice of Jesus, that he is truly present as a sacrifice. And so we can call that an altar. Um, But if you go back to the Old Testament, that was not called an altar. It was called a table of presence. So you could also put the bread and the wine on a table that's not an altar, and call that a table of presence. And some Protestant churches do that also. Um, so there's a lot. Jesus did not say in the New Testament how going forward all of these things should be named and where they should be placed and that sort of thing. Um, so, but this is, the, this is the table of presence. The reason why it's called a table of presence is because the bread and wine are on this table of presence. It's the presence of God. On, on the table, which is the same with us, right? It's the presence of God. It's just that we know that God is Jesus, and so therefore the presence of Jesus is on this altar. Um, the, another, another kind of point of contention between various denominations is what exactly is on the altar? Is it um, just bread and wine? Is it, is it transformed bread and wine where it actually is the body and the blood of Christ, or is it something else? And Roman Catholicism uh, has historically maintained that when the priest consecrates the elements, it actually transforms from the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Jesus. That's called transubstantiation. And even in some churches all throughout Europe, they will have pieces of flesh that are in the case and it looks like flesh and what what 
the people behind those exhibits say is that when the priest actually consecrated the the bread and the wine and turned it into the body and blood of Christ, you could actually see a physical transformation of the bread into flesh. And so they take that flesh and they put it in a case and they say this, and that's part of the miracle that's required for a priest to become a saint because anytime a, uh, a, a well-known uh, person in the church be, is beatified or whatever, then they become a saint and part of that requires miracles. And, it, and so one of the miracles could be that he actually was part of this process of turning the, the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Jesus. All right, so... Um, in Protestant theology, um, there's two types. One is what I would call Calvinism, uh, which is um, that the bread and the wine is symbolic of Jesus, but it actually isn't Jesus. It doesn't turn into Jesus. Uh, there is no transubstantiation. Uh, but Lutheran theology of all, you know, all of that is unique in that Lutheran theology says that the bread remains and the wine remains, but after it's consecrated, the presence of Jesus comes into the bread and the wine, and Jesus is truly present in the bread and in the wine. It may not look like Jesus, it, you know, and the bread and the wine still remain, but Jesus is there too. So in Catholic theology, uh, after the consecration, it's just a uh, body and blood of Jesus. In Protest in Calvinism, it is, uh, it is just bread and wine, and Jesus isn't present, but in, in Lutheran theology, it's bread and wine and body and blood. They're all four present on the table of presence, and so that's kind of what Lutheran theology believes, um, which is kind of cool um, because in a way, it, it kind of, if uh, I think it's probably what modern Catholics believe because they look at this and they say, you know, I can see that it's not the body and blood of Jesus. So, but I think, I believe that Jesus is truly present. And then in, in Calvinism, you talk to many Calvinists, Presbyterians, um, even even some Baptists, you know, that, that's all kind of on the Calvinist side. Uh, they will say that they truly believe the, or feel the presence of God whenever they're in Holy Communion. Well, that means that there's something supernatural around the body and blood of Jesus, the the, uh, the bread and the wine, and so it is not uh, it is not a bad theology. Actually, I think it's a great theology that all four are present. That after the bread and the wine is consecrated, it turns into it it, uh, it, it infuses into it the presence of Jesus. The the uh, the body and the blood of Jesus, which is then what we eat, and it's what we remember. It's a sacrifice. That one is called also consubstantiation, and it's also called um, the real presence. And um, you know, those are, those are kind of some of the words that are used in Lutheran circles to to tell what's happening on the table of presence. And and it really is um, kind of cool for me because I love, you know, tradition, is that, that going back and picking up the fact that this was uh, commanded by God to build this table at a certain size and that Jesus then used that as part of his last supper and that he told the Christian church to continue doing that, that there's an arc of history throughout Christianity 
that reminds us of where we started and where we're going, um, and that that's important. It was important for the Israelites, and it's important for us also. Um, so that's that's the table of presence, and that's why we celebrate it. Uh, in modern day Christianity, would it have to be on an altar? You know, on a on a uh, on a Lutheran theological. Well, let's let's look at non Lutherans. Uh, Protestants. Let's look at non-Lutheran Protestants. So it'd be Calvinists. This would be Baptists. This would be anybody kind of on that spectrum. They would say absolutely it can't be an altar because if it was an altar, then you would have to have a sacrifice and you'd have to have the true presence of Jesus. So they'd never call the thing in the sanctuary that holds these things an altar. They might call it the table of presence, um, which would be very biblical also. Uh, in Lutheran theology, um, because Jesus is truly present, um, you could call it an altar, but you could also call it the table of presence. You could have, uh, you could have both. I mean, you could have just a place. And I've seen some Lutheran churches uh, actually um, have these things in various locations that are not on an altar. Um, so I, I, I've seen that also because. We, we have a lot of flexibility in Lutheran theology because we kind of, you know, have both sides, if you will. In Roman Catholicism, it absolutely has to be an altar. It has to be an altar. And the altar in Roman Catholicism is the center point of the sanctuary or the, or the uh, cathedral. If you've ever looked at um, or a, a Catholic or Roman Catholic cathedral, typically they're made in the shape of a cross. And where that cross comes together, the center point of that cross is where they put the altar. And then all the altar is where they have the body and blood of Jesus, the actual body and blood of Jesus, because it turns into the body and blood of Jesus. And the Old Testament, it, this actually does not exist in the Holy of Holies. This is outside the Holy. The only thing that's in the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. So this is outside. Uh, we're going to talk about the lampstand. That's also outside. And then the, the Ark of the Covenant is in the Holy of Holies. Um, but I, I just, I think this is kind of cool. I think the, uh, the table of presence and the fact that we tie into this in, uh, in Christianity is really kind of a cool thing. And, um, and so uh, I, I believe that the symbology of this and the, and the presence of Jesus in this uh, is highly is significant, and so um, that's that's what I believe. Um, but uh, the other thing that should be pointed out, and maybe one last thing, is that unlike Roman Catholicism, so Lutheran theology believes there's two high points to worship. One is the Word, the Word of God, which is the preaching. And if you go into uh, uh, any major like Presbyterian or sometimes even Baptist uh, churches, they elevate the preaching higher than um, the body and blood of Christ because for them, it's the word of God that is the number one thing that exists on Sunday morning. And so you go into some of these churches and they have ornate uh, pulpits and the pulpit reaches up over the preacher and creates this huge entire presence that what's happening on Sunday morning with this preacher is bringing the word of God, which is powerful to the people. And that, and that uh, pulpit then is center to the, um, center to the, the design of the whole entire cathedral or whatever you want to call it. 
So, uh, and then the altar, the table of presence would not be, would be off to the side. Uh, and the, what's elevated is the preaching of the word of God. Um, in Lutheran uh, tradition, typically the altar and the word are significant and, and present. Um, obviously, they both can't be present at the same spot unless it's movable. I mean, if, it, if it's movable, you could have the altar when you're doing altar stuff as the main, you know, place of location. And then you could have the pulpit when it's, you know, when it's being used as the main place of location. Theologically, I've kind of got them both in the center line because they're both important. Um, but you can't, it's hard to put them both in the same location if you, because you, you have to elevate one or the other. Um, although because of modern sanctuary design, you could actually use lighting and you could have lighting to show the altar when it's being used and then the alt and then the pulpit when it's being used. So there's there's lots of things that you can do um, in a in a in a church, modern church design to try to elevate some of the historic significance of all these things. Um, but um, God gives a lot of freedom in this. There there is God did not say where it needs to be and how it needs to be placed because the temple no longer exists as a building. The temple now is in the body of Christ. Wherever two or more are gathered, that's where Jesus is. He's in the midst of them. And so as long as you've got two people and you've got the word of God and you've got these things, it, that's all that's necessary. Everything else is secondary. Uh, there's a fancy theological term for it called adiaphora, which means it's neither commanded nor forbidden by God. It leave, it, he leaves it up to our human design is how these things are placed, which is good because even in the history of Lutheran churches, sometimes the altar was up against the back wall. Sometimes it was brought out uh, into the presence of the people. I mean, I've, I've seen all sorts of different things because we have Christian freedom in these areas, uh, which is kind of cool too. Um, all right. So I think that's enough on that. So let's, uh, let's continue with this uh, at the next episode and we'll close out today with prayer. Oh, gracious God, thank you for your presence in the tabernacle. And thank you for the pres your presence in us. For this, we are so grateful. Lord, be with us uh, until we meet again and keep us ever in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.